This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Check one, two. Ladies and gentlemen, I just had the sheer pleasure of talking to Ashwini Prasad, the inclusive screenwriter. What's her spiel? Well, it's in the name. It is really about bringing together stories that have never been told before. It is about humanity. It's about history. It's about certain political correctness that needs to be adjusted, that needs to be brought to mainstream Hollywood today. Ashwini Prasad is just this amazing writer who wants to bring together a community of people through her brand of writing alone. I find that with what is currently going on, with what is just days away in this current election, this is such a relevant topic because so many people's lives are affected by this. Who knows, after this election, maybe we will have the ability to tell stories about how marginalized peoples came together to fight against this government that is currently working against it. And not to get too political, but there's a lot of things systemically that we need to fix within this nation. And one of them is the way that media is produced. One of the things that needs to be improved upon is the way that we send messages about people of color and marginalized people in general. Ashwini Prasad was a fantastic guest. I know you're going to love her. And on top of that, I am so proud to announce that she has actually become a client of mine in my business for Mr. Thrive Media. She has now become a client. We will together be producing inclusive screenwriting. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. As soon as it's released, we'll keep you informed on how you can stay engaged in the community of the inclusive screenwriter. Finally, Ashwini also had recently attended our networking party for Halloween. She had a great time, and I know you guys are going to have a great time as well. Our next one is on November 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. I look forward to seeing you there. It is our Friendsgiving event, and I know you're going to have a great time completely free email chaz at mrthrive.com or go on to mrthrive.com under the events tab to RSVP and register for the event. I look forward to seeing you there. And without further ado, let's get this show on the road. You have stumbled upon Mr. Thrive Stars of Tomorrow, where together we will discover emerging artist, the inclusive screenwriter, Ashwini Prasad. Ashwini, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. No, I'm excited to have you. How have you been? Um, all is well overall. You know, at this point, I've uh, managed to avoid COVID-19 and also forest fires. So I consider myself blessed. Yes, I, I think every day we go through general problems in our personal lives and then realize when you look at the grand scope of things in the world, that like, wow my issues in my life are so minimal and there's so much gratitude to be given to what's just currently going on. Oh goodness. Yeah. I mean, I look around my home and it's like, wow, I have a, I have food. I have a place to rest my head. That's comfortable. I have electricity. I mean, it's, it, you know, my two words for 2020 at this point, it went from unprecedented right back in March, <laughs> April. Yeah. And now, now my, now it's moved to two words, which are perseverance and resiliency right so that clever usage of word right word verbiage right there goes into so much of what you do you're a screenwriter you are uh, a writer as a whole but specifically your brand is screenwriting and i wanted to ask you what is the inclusive screenwriter what does it mean 
Um, yeah, great question. So, uh, well, I'll give you a quick blurb about where this came from uh, to help out your listeners too, is uh, when you're branding yourself, you want to be like, it's the, and, and what you uh, want to be known for, your brand, and then your output. So that's where the inclusive screenwriter came in. So you'd be the like Thrive Media Volk or something, you know, like. <laughs> we <laughs> are rebranding you... from this moment on. That's it. No, 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 no. <laughs> Thrive Media. We know that's what it is. Um, and so it's primarily because I'm an anti-racist educator. I have 20 plus years of experience in that place. And we can delve into more about my background around that. But because I come to screenwriting with a different perspective than other people, it's through that inclusion lens and diversity and equity lens. Um, all my scripts are, are uh, led by folks that have been either erased or marginalized from history. And then also um, you, pe people might know about a sensitivity reader. So I look through, um, well, I, one, I look at media and I'm like, ooh, that's the wrong image or the wrong term. That's not, that's very offensive. And sometimes people are like, what do you mean? And I have to explain the origin of words. Um, and so that's the lens that I come to when I look at all media or when I create media. Like actually, you know what, that, that gives me a great idea. Can you name an example of something that just stands out of something that just did not age well, that <laughs> we could all use sensitivity training towards a, a specific type of media or a specific film that you can think of? Oh, goodness. Goodness, goodness. As you're probably cycling through all the, all the I, movies I right now. Well, I, you're, you know, your listeners can't see me, but you can. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's, it's the old school Rolodex right now where I'm just like, which one? Okay, so we've talked about this before, Chaz, and so mm -hmm. I'm going to bring it up again. Um, Do it. The Mel Brooks movies. Okay. From back in the day. So I used to really love... <laughs> It's like almost embarrassing to say I used to really love this movie, Robin Hood Men in Tights. And uh, I rewatched it recently and I was like, oh gosh, this movie is not aging well at all. Uh, the amount of blind jokes that are in there played by a person who is not blind is completely culturally insensitive. Uh, the things that happened to Dave Chappelle, the comedian, because he's in it as one of one or the or very very few black men in the movie is utterly ridiculous there is a joke in there when the lead character says goodbye and i remember laughing at that years ago and then i forgot in the context of it or i understood the context better and i rewatched it and I, and he say he says goodbye in all these different languages and at the end he says it in a language where comes across really funny but the whole context and why he says it it, it just it was just so inappropriate and I racist know that, right that's that's the word yeah. <laughs> racist thank you and I know like you know Mel Brooks as with somebody with a, you know a Jewish background and he was definitely a shock person you know shock factor but you know things don't age well they really don't and when you go back and you take a look at definitely early 2000 movies and it's like oh my goodness are you kidding me this is this is not good so definitely that that actually comes really top of mind when I think about some sensitive sensitivity training that that needs to happen and along those lines honestly there's sensitivity training that needs to happen now you know I, I I can't tell you how many times 
um, the, the reference to, oh, you're such a girl or you're such a P word, five letters ends in Y. So, you know, when you use that term, you're essentially calling somebody a girl or a woman saying that they're less than. That's what you're saying. And so we need to be very mindful about how we're using terms that we, we may flippantly use, but we have to realize that if you're talking about another person or another person's parts and you're calling another person that you're, you're degrading them, you're intentionally degrading them, and you're also degrading somebody that has that attribute. I think that's really well put. And specifically with Mel Brooks, going back to just Mel Brooks for one second, I, I, I'll tell you right now, I personally am very selective about which movies I absolutely gawk over. For example, you can't hate Spaceballs. <laughs> and, and, but like, but then you see movies like Blazing Saddles. And for me personally, like, yeah, that's yeah. one that like, I want to love, like it's the best comedy ever made. But I also recognize that there are things that are done in that movie that work against my personal morals. At the end of the day, I don't think Mel Brooks even takes himself seriously. And that's where you kind of have to let go a little bit but I'll, I'll give you an example of a movie that doesn't sit well with me i remember the second time watching it the first time i watched it, i was a little younger but growing up i realized as i was taking screenwriting classes and learning about the and the purpose of closure um i hate the movie taxi driver oh wow that, that yeah. movie that movie okay here's what it's about and compare that to the context of today right it's about a guy who just came back from the war, a veteran, he comes to New York and he sees New York as a dirty place. And the only reason why it's dirty is because there are sex workers and people of color on the streets. So yeah. he decides he wants to clean it up with his gun. And in doing so, the whole entire plot of the story develops into him saving a prostitute from a pimp. And then he ends up in the hospital and he's called the hero at the end of the day. Yep. That's the right. summary of the whole movie. I just ruined it for everyone who hasn't seen Taxi Driver, but that's what it's about. It's about a racist who doesn't learn his lesson of being a racist. It's about a gunslinger who doesn't learn his lesson of being a gunslinger. It's just about a very nationalist vigilante who kind of saves one person because she's white and hot. That's and, it. Well, well and, and you know, the overt and covert misogyny um in that movie and other movies oh, and uh, the male savior or a white savior you know and it's just like oh my goodness and it, it does trouble me I, I will say i agree like because i'm like who watches this and you know how is it still referenced that's the bizarre part for me 100 it's considered a huge classic like like no one wants <laughs> to let go of that film as one of these great films and classic Hollywood, but it's, I think quite frankly, it's terrible. Well, do you want to know what the first Hollywood blockbuster was? Wait, 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 wait. I knew, uh, you're talking, oh, um, is it the, it's not the jazz singer, right? No. Um, King Kong. One more shot. King Kong. (laughs) The one from, (laughs) that's awesome. That's actually a really good guess. No, it is from 1915. It is Birth of a Nation. That's right. Birth of a Nation. You're absolutely right. G.W. Griffith. Yep. Yes. So this is where clans folks are immortalized. They're coveted. Uh, black folks in the movie, I mean, it's black face. They are all slaves. They are all characters. They're like mammies, they're minstrels. And even if you look at, you know, the classic quote unquote movies, Birth of a Nation is still coveted as the first Hollywood blockbuster. 
And, you know, talking about not aging well, look at Gone with the Wind. It's also part of a registry and it's considered a classic. And it's about, it's about the South. Yeah. <laughs> during the Civil War. Uh, and it celebrates, you know, the South and slavery. So we have to be really careful. And this is where, you know, having that critical eye and then also like folks, and it doesn't matter your ethnicity or orientation or anything, like we all kind of look at those and we're like, huh? Like, I, I get that they were made and I get it. They had a time and place. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't watch them. You know, I'm not here to tell anybody that. Um, but there was an actor, it was a black actor and the name was escaping me. But I remember this actor said, it should at least, you know, not to say that you can't watch it, but at the beginning, it should now come with a warning and it should say that it was created at this time. And, you know, these are things that are not endorsed, you know, view at your own will. And I think that's a good compromise. I do think that's a fair compromise. If people want to watch it or they're interested in it or they want to see the content, which could be for historical reasons, you know, that, and I'm not here to tell people not to watch it. Um, but I, I think that having kind of like a trigger warning or a disclaimer would be really helpful for some movies, especially movies like Birth of a Nation or Gone with the Wind. I, you know, I like that attitude a lot. And and I think that goes hand in hand, by the way, with something I've been, you know, kind of thinking about, especially with the, the act of a lot of these protests where they take down national statues, right, of historical figures who had owned slaves. And then it becomes a question, like, should we even have statues of leaders who were founding fathers, but owned slaves? So should we take down George Washington's statue along with Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson and other major founding fathers? And you know, I was, I was thinking about this and I think that there needs to be more education on those figures and their flaws, like what you just said. I'm not entirely, I haven't fully formed my opinion on whether or not we, those statues should exist. But what I will say is that if we continue to take down the origins of history, despite the flaw, like because of the flaws, we aren't better. And I really do mean this, especially as a Jew who has, you know, been marginalized by a history in the 30s and 40s from uh, Nazi Germany in the Third Reich. We will not be better than the Nazis of Germany. And I say that because one of the first steps in the process of the Holocaust was to burn books, was to burn any form of culture yeah. that could educate anyone on that right. past. Because right. Nazis knew they were smart. They knew that if people sympathize with what they know, mm -hmm. you cannot sympathize with something you don't know. That really is the simple answer. So that goes hand in hand with these statues. These were flawed individuals. Why can't there be a plaque on there that, you know, this would be very obvious and probably not the right way to go about this. But imagine if there was a plaque that said George Washington below that in parentheses, president, general, slave owner. Okay, yeah. maybe yeah. that's a little bit too <laughs> blunt. Maybe it's a little bit too obvious. It's accurate though. But it's accurate. And what I'm saying, what I'm saying is there needs to be more education on what these leaders did. Washington, D.C. should not be a pinnacle of propaganda. It should be a pinnacle for American history. Yeah, and I don't disagree with you. And I think there's two points, right? So the first is uh, my personal opinion is who are we asking about who deserves to be a celebrity, to be coveted? Are we asking the people that were enslaved, you know, would I want to walk through a square uh, of a person who um, enslaved my great grandparents, 
my answer and I, I, I can't, I can only uh, sympathize. I can't empathize. My answer would be no. Um, but we need to be real with that story. And it means truth telling. And I was talking to a friend earlier today, how we have erased people of color, people with disabilities, people that are part of the LGBT, you know, uh, two spirit people, we have erased these folks. And so I don't, I don't agree with erasing them. But I do think that we can put them in museums if people want to learn about them. You know, uh, they're definitely in our history books. Um, they're not gone from our money. So they're still here in different ways. But do we need a big old statue of a slave owner? I know I don't want to see that. But I do agree that we need to have an honest conversation, truth telling about this country's history, not from one perspective or celebrating people who today did some horrific, horrific things. We are, we are not being truthful to ourselves. And as a storyteller, you know, we may be creators and, and tell different types of stories as a screenwriter, but I, I definitely advocate having authentic characters and humanized characters. So there's a whole history about why they do X, Y, Z. And I think part of what you're also, you know, I would say that for me is that's why it's why I have one of my missions and it's definitely a purpose in my life is to write about these people that we don't hear about that have too much one, one group has had the long held narrative in this country. And I would say in North America, these are, I can only speak for North America as a Canadian and U.S. citizen. I can't speak for the world. Um, and so, you know, it's important to bring back the, Japanese Schindler, the World War II spy who was half South Asian Indian, half US American, and she was executed uh, um, at a concentration camp in Europe. We, and it's important to, you know, for people to understand, it's important for me to bring back those uh, South Asian Indians that, uh, Sepoys that fought in World War I. They were, you know, I want to see a statue of them <laughs> because they, they were key figures. There's not a lot of history about the Sepoys, but there was 1.3 million of them that served under the British Empire. They're, you know, so they get washed into British soldiers and we typically don't see South Asian Indians. I've only seen them represented for about 10 minutes in two movies, 1917 and War Horse. Mm -hmm. But the little history that's there, you know, that they say, historians say that if the Sepoys weren't there on the Western Front, British might not have won the three battles at Ypres. And if Ypres had fallen, then the Germans would have access to the French coastline. Wow. Wow. Just, just one, one group that is not examined enough has made such a pivotal effect on world history. That's just, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. And quite frankly, I didn't know that story until you told it. I'm going to admit to you right now as a white man, I'm very ignorant to people of color and their effect on the world, or at least I'm ignorant in comparison to you. And I want to say that one day this quarantine is going to be over. The film industry will continue and film production will thrive again, right? Yes. Yeah. In lieu of that happening, I am excited for the day that we see more people of color on the silver screen being able to represent their culture and their past well. We, have, we did start to see a lot more of that right before the quarantine started. 
you know yeah, um, yeah. And i remember we we spoke about this during the pre-interview session but the movie crazy rich asians which was an all yeah. asian cast well, i think the first hollywood movie to have an all asian cast right that was what helped one of the, history. one of the first since a very long time there's the joy luck club and then there was another one that came out the same year as titanic so it, unfortunately, it did not have its day, but definitely in the tw- in the two thousands, hundred percent. You know, right. all all Asian cast. Yeah. Let's dial it back for one second. We've been talking a lot about what you know, but now let's talk about you. You said you're sure. from Canada. I am. I grew up in Vancouver, BC, but I also grew up in Calgary, Alberta. And so to situate that for the U.S. American folks, and notice I don't say American, I say U.S. American, Mm. because America is North America and South America. Um, So for my U.S. American friends, basically, I grew up in Montana. That went full circle right there. That's great. And so, so you grew up in the Canadian equivalent of Montana. Well, and, my first early years, my early years. Yeah. Right. Your early years. <laughs> and was it around that time that you started to start educating yourself on what the inclusive screenwriter is about today? Or did that come later on? It came later on. I'll just really quickly talk about a little bit about me. So uh, <laughs> I, people don't believe me when I say this. You've, I think you've heard this story, so that's why you're giggling too. So I was 10 in Vancouver, BC, and I remember sitting in a small little apartment with my sister and my parents. And, and I remember <laughs> telling my parents that, like having an argument with them and being like, and okay, let me just go back just for a quick second my parents are immigrants to Canada. Okay. So let's just set that stage. So I remember arguing with my parents and I had this idea at such an early age at 10 that somehow because you were an artist, you had to be starving, which is, I don't know where I got that, but no, that's not the case. But I'm having this argument with my 10 year old self, (laughs) thinking about this with my parents, that it doesn't matter if you're a starving artist, as long as you're loving what you're doing, that's all that you need. So you can only imagine how well that went with my immigrant parents. <laughs> it did not go well for me. So <laughs> I fast forward and I think about like my music teacher, arts. And she told me before I went into high school, um, in Canada, we don't have middle, in Vancouver, we don't have middle school. You go from elementary school to high school. And I remember it was like the last day of elementary school. And I remember she told me to continue on with music. And I can't remember if she said that I had a talent or a gift. Um, but I remember she addressed me and I didn't, I did do theater and I felt, of course I loved it. Um, and I did it all, all four or five years. So I think what I, yeah, I think what it was is that grades eight through 10, um, I, I took it as my elective. It was always my elective. And then in grades 11 and 12, what you could only take it as an after school class and I totally did and I I remember I got one of a one of the lead roles in uh, the high school play for the year and I actually turned it down and I haven't delved into why um, but you know that's what I did and then fast forward to college and um, for most folks I think you have to do like an art science or letters um, background I think it's two or three classes you have to finish it before you graduate so I chose theater <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I'd done so much theater and, and done some acting and, and so it was interesting taking it again, but it was cool when we talked about it. So again, I take my class 
and it's the last day of winter term in, in my theater class. And the teacher told me to come and audition for the spring play. And she said that she had the perfect role for me. And I did not show up for auditions. <laughs> How come you didn't show up? question i don't know i mean i chose you know partying over <laughs> auditions and 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 you know seven to nine seven to ten seven to eleven uh when you're in you know i know the, i know the hours i know the theater hours you know right. when you're rehearsing um oh my goodness especially early on as you're just trying to get everything ready uh you know you're spending a lot of hours as you know you're spending a lot of hours um, I was a so theater was, kid too. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, ex you, you remember those those nights, and but you love it, right? And you get up at six a.m. and you're back at school, and then you're going, and then right away at three thirty, you're back in the auditorium. Um, and so it was it was kind of all of that, but it's always been there. You know, it's definitely always been there. You know, as you're talking, I'm hearing this underlying tone of there's a certain motivation to to what you do. You know, even though some of the things you didn't except I think part of it might be, and forgive me if I'm wrong, you just wanted to show yourself that you could do it. Once you got yeah, there, you didn't actually yeah. want to go through with it. You just wanted to have the satisfaction of being chosen, right? But that, that doesn't, yeah. but that doesn't go without being motivated, right? Yeah, what motivates no, you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, no, that's a great question. So you have the theater background and then I do the college thing and I gravitate towards anti-racism work at anti-racism educator. Um, uh, I've done a couple of master's degrees and one of my first uh, theses that I wrote, my first master's thesis was on how to, how to build anti-racism ed education in colleges and universities. So, and, you know, being called racist names growing up, it's like, wow, you know, like this is not right. Right. And going through, I was privileged enough to go to college. So my ability then to, to understand these things are wrong and why we should be fighting for justice for all people. And it's just not happening to me. It's happening to too many people that this needs to stop. And, and so, you know, I did the path and climbed up that whatever ladder, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But um, my, my anti-racism work that was has always been there. You know, I think as a child, I just didn't have the words for it. And then once I found it in college, it's like, yes, like this equity and justice and fairness, these are important to me. And not just inclusion, it's very important, but belonging. Belonging is important because belonging is the only, for me, the only way it's defined by the person. Diversity, equity, inclusion, those are usually defined by an organization, a company, or buzzwords. Belonging truly comes from the person. And so, you know, fast forward now to my life in 2013, and I was missing something. I, you know, again, I'd climbed that ladder, I did my education, but I, I was like, I need to take my skills and work at an art gallery or like some, somewhere where it was a mix of uh, the arts and uh, my skills that I had acquired as a businesswoman. And you can't, you know, when you have that whisper, right? Like when you've had something that's there and it's always there. And I think it's James Cameron that says it. It's, it's James Cameron or Steven Spielberg that it's a whisper. You're calling in what is there. And so, you know, I'm thinking back to all these experiences you and I were just talking about. And, and so it just evolved. And then, you know, of course, I met these like yogis and musicians and artists. And then I started writing. And uh, that's where uh, this brand kind of started. What a wonderful story. 
you talked about a concept belonging as a person of color have you struggled with that feeling 100 percent. even growing up in vancouver bc um you know when people go there like oh wow it's beautiful and it's so diverse kind of um it is diverse comparatively to different areas but there's a lot more when i think of more diverse i would look at a new york or a toronto and when, what I love about going to Toronto especially is every block, every time you turn a corner, there's another language, there's another accent that's really being spoken. And Vancouver definitely is diverse, but there's a, definitely a, a larger um, Hong Kong Chinese uh, folks that live there. Whereas in Toronto, I would say it's definitely a lot more prominent with many other cultures. It's not like one definite big culture. Um, and so I, just in general, I wouldn't say that I've ever really felt like I, I belonged in, in any space. I, was, I, I think there were definitely times where I was more safe than unsafe. And in media, I definitely did not feel like I belonged. There were, you know, you look at Apu, like on The Simpsons, mm. and there was nobody for me to really focus in on. And Bollywood is huge, but I don't watch a lot of Bollywood movies. I'm slowly starting to get into them, but I grew up here, and my parents didn't watch a lot of Bollywood movies. So that wasn't a part of, of me. So I wasn't able to identify maybe uh, as much as my peers in terms of belonging. But honestly, up until never have I ever, as a screenwriter, that was the first time something from a South Asian Indian, you know, Southern Indian woman, Mindy Kaling, is the first time that I truly felt like I belonged on the screen and that I was being represented. It's just so perfectly done for me in terms of representation and comedy and the ability to demonstrate um, my family, like what I grew up with. And I can imagine myself at 16 uh, as the lead character. Devi could easily have been me. And so I think it's just kind of a mix of that. And, and media plays such a huge portion. So however you have in your family life, well, what are your friends talking about? What are you watching on TV? What are you doing on YouTube? It's, it's a huge influence. You know, unless you don't have media or you have very limited screen time, you are influenced daily, hourly by the minute. You know, we're on a medium right now. Um, you're influenced with that. And so it's nice to see people you can relate to. It speaks to a documentary that by the time that everyone's listening to this, I'll probably have watched it. But I, at this current moment, haven't watched it yet. The Social Dilemma, which is a new documentary uh -huh. on Netflix talking about how social media dictates our lives. Doesn't influence our lives, dictates our lives. Yeah. And it's about the disturbing eeriness of that. Um, and it, I think... Yeah, I think it's very specific about social media, but that social media has kind of become this all-encompassing, ubiquitous force that is to be reckoned with in any factor of your life. Why yeah. I bring this up is because um, when it comes to Never Have I Ever, that is a show that I have never seen such representation like that in a long time. I think the last time I saw representation like that presented in an educational but funny way talking about the intermingling with the struggle with with self-identity as a she's indian right forgive me south asian indian south asian yeah. indian right so she's south asian indian and trying to blend in with the general a uh, general uh you know just white, being a teenager yeah just yeah. being a teenager just yeah. trying to fit in you know like I've, i haven't seen that kind of representation in a very long time and yeah it ha yeah 
no, I, I just, I think it was, I think it was really well done. And I think that probably left a ripple in the giant algorithm that we are now considered <laughs> within the social media world. It's ripples like that though, that will change the way we look at culture, whether you have a left belief or a right belief, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier. If you can just get to know people and, and at, a, at a human level, and like your earlier comment, I think it's important as screenwriters and the media that we put out there because it is so influential and there's data to back that up that we are really influenced by the media we consume, that we can tell these stories that people don't know about or we can just tell stories where, you know, somebody is just there. Like there's a woman with Down syndrome that's in Never Have I Ever. And so there needs, doesn't need to be a big backstory about her, um, her different ability. It's just she's a person with Down syndrome and we're seeing her. And I haven't seen somebody prominently displayed till, uh, since Corky and Life Goes On. And that was back in the 90s, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like, uh, and that Corky was, I think, the first actor that was uh, with Down syndrome that was on um, a major network. I'm pretty sure um, that was the first time we really saw a major character with Down syndrome. And, you know, the way it's displayed in Never Have I Ever with that belonging and that diversity, because diversity is not just skin deep, um, it's just nice to see a face and and to see, you know, that, that people have people with so many different varieties and spices of life in their families and it was nice to see that and and it was nice to see just an openly gay teen character and it's just like yeah i'm gay okay moving on instead of (laughs) see the issue is is that too many times in, in when people write stories and they do it from a not knowing so ignorance means simply not knowing we use it in a you know kind of a really badgering way but it really they like if you look up the definition of ignorant it really just means not knowing and so when if you write characters from an ignorant way you're you're not telling the human story and what i love about different characters and when characters are written well in different uh, in never have i ever or different movies and tv is that you're also just telling them as a human being and so you can just plop them into any any story and i think you and i have talked about like get out people could have been you know purple magenta and it, it, it would have still worked because it was a human story and it was awesome that it was a black family but you know we can have the whole gamut we can have the folks that are um, telling their stories and their struggles and they want to tell their family's histories and and all this to you know what this is just a whole bunch of characters and it, we don't care what ethnicities are we, we're just putting them in there and it's great we get to see them on the screen and they're telling a human story and what's important though is that we need people to be writing that content and making sure that it is inclusive and that you're not perpetuating really harmful stereotypes. And if you don't study and know about a group, you can definitely be perpetuating stereotypes because you're writing from a stereotypical perspective instead of the human perspective. And then something gets made, we watch it, and then the cycle of harmful stereotypes continues because when I don't know something, I go to media to find something out. And if what the content I am, reading is based in bias and misinformation then i am misinformed and i am continuing my bias i think that's such a great mentality because that itself just identified the product of the inclusive screenwriter brand 
right? So we know the brand is the inclusive screenwriter, but the key words right there are human. It is human stories, history. Yeah, human <laughs> stories, history right there, right? Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of uh, know I think, my brand. <laughs> right, right. So we, we now understand the brand. We have the product. I don't know. I think it's something that is just so necessary. We are seeing in the industry right now progress in those steps forward, but what is something that we're still missing that we can speed the process on now? Yeah, definitely. That's a fantastic question. So um, I wrote a book. I wrote a book and it's titled How to Write Inclusively, an Analysis and How-To Guide. So I'll pick off um, around 2016, where I said 2016, I met those artists and yogis, and then I started writing. Well, I started writing, um, at first it was just poetry and, and um, little works to do spoken word. And then I decided, I, after I found out about the Sepoys that I mentioned earlier, I started writing. So I can find a lot of books to date about structure, uh, how to use dynamic words, how to uh, stage and make sure you have conflict and drama and character development. But when it came to how do I write a story about people um, I may or may not know, very little content. And even the books, you know, they might mention diversity is good and that's all it goes to. And even in the research, there will be information and they'll say, you know, there's an issue with diversity and inclusion in Hollywood. And then it'll say, so an example. So one recommendation to stop this is that you should write scripts or have scripts without confirmation bias or scripts should not have stereotypes. And that's it. And that's all it'll say. That's so if you're not an anti-racist educator, if you're new to screenwriting, if you don't know about different groups, what do you do with that information? And so, you know, if you can't find it, well, uh, Toni Morrison has this quotation attributed to her. Um, then, you know, if you don't see the story or, you know, have the information that you want to read, then you need to write the book. So I did. And so what I do there in my book is I have actually how-tos how to write inclusively. And so the information there is, okay, so if you can do a face-to-face -face or a Zoom-to-Zoom -Zoom for now, these are the things that you should look for. And how to, uh, you know, when you have somebody in front of you, in front of a group that you don't know about or very, are unfamiliar with, then go ahead and um, these are things you should be looking for. This is how to look for them. And then these are some questions to ask that person. Hey, Chaz, you know, when you see Jewish folks in the media, what do you like of how they're portrayed? What don't you like? So you can be informed. And then also sometimes, you know, maybe you're writing about a, an area of the world that right now we can't travel to, or it's really hard to travel to. Then I have recommendations. If you can't do a face-to-face -face or a Zoom-to-Zoom, -Zoom, how to research, where to go and get this research information, information about a group or, um, you know, certain cultures. And then questions you should be asking yourself after you um, have the content. So what's similar in all the content? You know, if you watch three movies, what was similar? What was different? And then be able to then take that information and go, okay, I'm a writer, or even if you're not a writer. So if you are a writer, I'm more, coming and writing from a more informed place than I was prior. And if I take this information seriously, then it's just not as a writer, but as a human being, I'm more informed about another group 
our you know culture, nation, et cetera, that I didn't know about prior to my research. I think that's such a vital resource for all screenwriters to get a hold of. And the book is published, right? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Yeah. Perfect. You can get it on Amazon. So I definitely want to buy this book now because there are definitely some things I'd like to approach with. But here's a question that I have right off the top of my head, right? Is it possible to write inclusively while having a intentionally comedic stereotype in your screenplay? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if you, it's really hard. So my recommendation for anybody that was going to do that is one, you need to have at least three people from that group review your work or see your sizzle reel or something that you're doing and, and they can't be your friends. And, and then they can and take their input seriously. And I think that if you are going to build a character like that, make sure they're human. If you make them one or two dimensional, you're really doing a disservice. And if you're, you know, it's like the Mel Brooks, a satire or mockery. Well, who's also, you need to ask yourself, who's going to be watching this? Who's going to be influenced by this? Are they going to un understand this is meant to be comedic? It, they're all characters. You know, I think this is where when we write, something and we don't do and it's meant to be mocking uh to prove a point well we need to be very mindful of who's actually uh, going to be consuming this content are they going to understand your in intent because you know just because you intend something does not mean that harm was not done uh it's that uh, intention versus impact because the impact could be really bad and then like i said you know i would definitely ask a whole bunch of people <laughs> from that group to review it beforehand i think that that's such a great approach and i think that's such a professional answer especially the part about not having your friends be the ones who review <laughs> it to <laughs> affirm whether or not you are being you are crossing the line in certain areas uh, cuz i can tell you right now me and someone who has been on this podcast his name is izzy salant we are writing a screenplay and this screenplay covers uh, the topic of jews in Israel specifically. So there is a few stereotypes that we play on, but that, you know, we're also trying to create a screenplay that covers the whole spectrum of the country of Israel. So we also include Arab people. We also have Palestinian people represented in the film. And while they're not comedic characters, we want to represent them in a healthy way while still focusing on Jews because those are the main characters. The Jews are the main characters in that. Um, it's a screenplay about uh, a coming of age story. And it's about um, people learning about the land that they belong to uh, that is so diverse and culturally rich. That diversity and that culturally rich, rich aspect uh, we're, we're writing about and we, we have a few different scenes that include uh, the overall narrative, talking about the conflict in very subtle ways while still focusing on the adventure aspect of it. So we're talking about this in our screenplay about Israel uh, while still you know, being sensitive to the narrative and putting it together. Granted, by the way, we're in the first draft, but we plan to show this and have people of Arabic background and Palestinian background to review this as well, because this needs to be a collaborative effort in order to turn the Israel-Palestine conflict into an Israel-Palestine relationship. That's exactly what I would say. And that's what I recommend in my book. So yes, exactly. And I can't wait to read it, by the way. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll definitely send it your way. I'd love <laughs> to get your feedback on it. And I think the other part, you know, to make sure that the people who are represented that you don't know about are reading the script, 
is also being able to send it to somebody like me who's a sensitivity reader because I'm looking for that. And it's because of my anti-racism background. So I pick up on things that other people would just, oh, who know? okay, just moving on, whether they're from a group or not. And I think one other point that I want to say, which is related, is never assume that because you've spent time with a group, I'm not saying, or I'm not saying this is you either, but you know, you so you know that of course, and we know, but you you're from your family, the background, you know the Arab-Palestinian issues, right? And the stories, or grandparents have told you stories, or the community has, is that even though you may have friends, uh, you may know about the background, you haven't lived in that body. You haven't, you know, you you don't celebrate Ramadan. Uh, you don't have the inside jokes. You don't have your grandparents maybe living with you and them telling you the stories of how this conflict started or how before there was much more peace and this is how people lived. Or even today, you know, we see the conflict but they don't show the weddings where everybody is invited. And so a personal example, again, right, I, I, living in Vancouver, BC, I actually I had a lot of Chinese friends. And 15, 20 years ago, if you had said to me, so can you write this Chinese character? I would have been like, yeah, of course, I have friends. I have Chinese friends. Yeah, I can write them. I spend time with them. Today, my answer is no, because of the things I just mentioned. I don't know what it is to be in that body. I don't know what it is to celebrate Chinese New Year and have it be such an important part of my culture. So if I'm going to write a Chinese character, it doesn't matter how many Chinese people are now or how long I've lived and gone to their homes and eaten their food, they still need to be, I still need to do the research um, with them and have them read my scripts because I'm not that, I'm not Chinese. I, I think that's uh, a really responsible approach for sure question for you would you yeah. be willing to share with us any of the work that you're currently working on or have done in the past yeah well i'm a screenwriter and i love to write so i um have a couple um my first feature is actually about the sepoys um it's a it's it's a definitely an indie piece, I would say, because I don't think one of the major networks would actually produce this, to be honest. The reason being is that it's a major time flip between today and World War One, but it does tell the story of the Sepoys. I have a dramedy um, that is uh, polished and ready to go. I need to start pitching it. I need to figure that part out, right? The hardest part of this industry, the, the writing part is easy. <laughs> getting it made and getting it in front of people is the hardest part. Um, it's called Kismet, and it has a South Asian Indian lesbian lead. And I purposely made her a lesbian because of the taboo of uh, LGBT folks in Indian culture. And so I wanted to make sure she's represented. And as a heterosexual woman, I'm doing the same thing that I have in my book. And so, you know, I'm having a lesbian woman uh, read the script. I, and I want a South Asian, at least one South Asian Indian woman to read it. And I think what's important to, to note on that is just because one person of a certain group reads it, they're not going to represent the entire group. But, you know, do your due diligence and get what you can. And so I'm going to practice what I preach. And so it is, um, Kismet has Priya as the South Asian woman lead who's totally codependent. And uh, because of series of happenstances, she wants to move to New York. And so you can only imagine how, what that happens when, you have, when you're in a codependent relationship with your parents and you're not self-sufficient. And she has this enabling aunt that helps her but hinders her. 
Uh, I also just finished uh, a script called Anglo-Indian. And so for your listeners that don't know who Anglo-Indians are, some famous ones are Ben Kingsley and Freddie Mercury. And so it's a coming of age story for um, a young, uh, kind of like a Devi, but it's a drama of a, a young 16 year old who doesn't have, who's Anglo-Indian. So he is um, English descent and uh, Indian descent living in uh, like a Sherman Oaks type of place. And he isn't really knowing a lot about about his Indian side and he's not really close to his family so he seeks those relationships and that knowledge from other places which creates conflict at home and then the one I'm writing right now is I'm super excited about it's a pilot episode for a basically the comps I would I would give is that it is um, uh, the History Channel meets uh, Little America and I actually am telling a much more deeper story about the Sepoys. And the goal is for the series to have all these different stories that we just never hear about. So I'm pretty busy, but I love it. That's lovely. I, I'm so happy to hear that you're working so hard at creating these stories for people of color and marginalized groups, uh, discovering themselves. That uh, seems like, like the kind of the big underlying theme of a lot of your scripts is uh, discovering yourself as a marginalized group. Yeah, and also that we we are just normal people. You know, we mm -hmm. go to the grocery store, we get gas. Um, you know, it, it's not all struggles. It's important if people want to learn about it. I think that's so important. Um, but the other side of that same coin is that, you know, we're also just living our lives. And, you know, we've seen so many different groups for so long. Why don't, why don't we include other groups and see their lives and see them on screen too, so that our media looks more like the world that we're starting to live in. Is that the big thing you want people to know about you? Yeah, I would say so. I, you know, inclusion is, again, it's not skin deep. It's so many different ways. And as writers, as people that are living lives, get to know people. Um, it's so important. That's, that's part of that inclusion. And, and don't be afraid. We were talking earlier about fear. Don't be afraid. We can, media can build down a lot of walls. And so can we just individually. That makes me think of something that might be a challenge for someone in your particular aspect of the, your career, right? Specifically for U.S. Americans, what is the most difficult aspect of educating people? Uh, you use U.S. Americans. Thank you. Um, you know, um, I was in New York about a year ago. And I was learning about Ellis Island. I was able to visit. I'd heard about it for so long, but I was able to go and visit it. And it was just so interesting to learn about the immigration story. I mean, up until the early 1800s, there was no immigration. The ports were open. People could come in and out. I don't know if it was really that easy, but how, you know, the stringent borders that we have, it really wasn't around. And I remember thinking after and just seeing how there were so many poor people that had escaped Europe to come to the United States to be safe or safer for a new chance. If we could, and I remember my first thought was, privileged thought, was um, everybody should come to Ellis Island. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody can go to New York <laughs> and pay the fee to get to Ellis Island and stay in New York. And if we can't go to Ellis Island, Ellis Island needs to come to people. 
and whether that's documentaries, whether it's taking all that information and making it readily accessible, maybe it already is, but it's not distributed the way it should, you know, and just having that information and learn about this country's history from there. Uh, well, 400 years ago. And then of course, you know, the last 200 years, if people could really appreciate that, I wonder how perceptions in this country would change, especially right now. I think that's such a great approach and it's a very relevant answer because of all the polarization that's currently in the air. There's a lot of stigma in the air. There's a lot of barriers, you know, and not to get too political, but Trump said he was going to create a wall. A lot of people make fun of him because he wasn't able to create a wall, uh, not an effective wall anyway. But I think that he wasn't talking about that wall after all. I think he was talking about a much bigger wall, one that is between you and your neighbor one that is between you and someone who could potentially become your best friend from all the way across the nation, but, you know, are subject to a different mindset. And you're, you're choosing to, I think it's symbolic too and metaphorical and you're choosing to not see past that. And, and, you know, like when I think about the Latinx community, (laughs) the, the border crossed them, the figurative wall, you know, was moved with them in it and they were enveloped in really horrific ways into this country. You know, there wasn't this conversation. Um, It was just much more forceful, you know, and and the, you know, the border crossed us is absolutely true. So do we understand that history? You know, rhetorically, right? Do we understand that history? Do we know that if you go to in the most Southern towns in Arizona, New Mexico, that English is definitely not a language that's spoken by a lot of people unless you're passing through. Do we know this about this country? And, and again, if we were educated and, and if you can have a broadband con, uh, connection, and I know that's a privileged answer too, but if you have it, oh my goodness, the world's, out, you know, in my day, it was an encyclopedia at the library. <laughs> Today, you can type in anything and be able to research good or bad. That's the issue. Check your sources though. History channel. I mean, and not to say history is also the best, but God, goodness, the amount of content about things that we were not taught that's coming out that you can educate yourself on right now, that is definitely more truth telling than it is fiction, or made up to um, make us fearful, the amount of content that you can really sift through and find, and allow yourself to be empathetic to another human being, especially your neighbor. I mean, it's unfathom, it was unfathomable 40 years ago. So we don't have an excuse. And what a better world we would have. I like to say to myself, and sometimes I say this to a lot of people, we live in a time where there's no reason not to know something, right? Yeah. And, and use, it, use it for good and make sure and check your sources. Right. In terms of today, I just, I find that, I think the big problem is that we have a concept of what good and bad is according to classic Hollywood films. We know what the good guy looks like. We know what the bad guy looks like, right? And sometimes the bad guy goes hand in hand with a person of color to the point where it actually is a perpetuating racist look that is equated with evil, right? 100%. That's a side note, by the way. But my point is, is that I think the concept of good and bad is becoming something more and more muddled to the day to the point where we're almost losing touch with ourselves because education, while it needs to be pursued it can also be very confusing and it, we're, in this, it is. we're in this weird place but there are people like you Ashwini right who are experts in your field and there are people who yeah. can become experts and I think that there's just there has to be a system in which we make sure 
that when you're pursuing a subject that it's not just one source that you're looking at, that you're looking at as many sources as possible to have a more clear and concise and a more balanced mentality towards that opinion that you're about to form. I agree. And I, and I, and that's the thing. It's not just one source or the stereotypes you've seen perpetuated in many media in the past. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're, it doesn't stop them from being stereotypes, you know? Um, And I'm going to give an example and forgive me, please forgive me if this is offensive at all. um, And to you or anybody, did you know that Adolf Hitler was a painter? I did. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know that till recently and other people didn't know that. And other people, can we look at them through that human lens? When you are writing, can you build a character that's not one dimensional? What I what I want to see is even if you're writing a villainous character, and this my friend Diane Wright to, um, helped educate me on this. Even if you're writing a villainous character, if you make them just go out and for killing, that's really stereotyping. But if you can create a character where we get a backstory, their family did something happen? Are you know were they orphaned? Were they treated unwell? And then this, and then that led to motivations of why they did that. That is such a different feeling when you read about them or you see them on the screen, you know, versus the one character where it's like, they're just there and, you know, the machetes in their hands or the guns in their hands and they're just running towards a group, just wanting to kill them. That is, it's such a different feel. And so that's such, you know, that's the mixture of storytelling, character development, Uh, empathy which is what you want for your characters as a writer and then when you are seeing them what emotions are being evoked from you when you see them in when you read see them on a screen or you read about them or you hear about them i know that the craze kind of came and went as soon as it went on netflix but i only (laughs) now am re-watching avatar the last airbender and as you're describing what you're talking about now i'm like wow that is such a perfect story because you have this villain who was introduced in season one, Zuko, with mm-hmm. his wise uncle Iroh, right? Mm-hmm. And Zuko is a struggling teenager who wants to earn his honor back for his father by right. capturing the Avatar. Yeah. Right? His, he beca- he, I, I'm watching it now maybe a third time in my life because I've rewatched it a few times. And I think Zuko is my favorite character. I really right. do. <laughs> And it's okay, and it's okay, because if he wasn't, if you didn't know his motivations, you would just hate him. Right. Right? But, okay, honor, okay, I can kind of see that, I get it. Even his right? wicked sister has some kind of backstory to her that makes her great. So that's, that's a show that does a fantastic job at giving, forcing you to have empathy for every single character, whether, you, well, every single character with a name, whether you like it or not, Right. Yes. Um, like, like you do have some characters that kind of come and go randomly. You're like, why are you even there? You're just being <laughs> ruckus, right? But that kind of goes hand in hand with the humor and the stylistic uh, storytelling of Avatar: The Last Airbender. Um, well, and another one, another area where if it's done well, are like the CW shows, the Arrows, the Flash, uh, Legends of Tomorrow, where where if they choose, you know, usually it's like a villain per season, but they tell the backstory of the villain. They tell the motivations. They show the human part of this villain. 
And so you're like, okay, you don't have to agree. And it doesn't make you a bad person, even if you agree, but you're like, oh, I, I see this person's motivations, or I kind of know somebody who could go like that, or I do know somebody that is a lot like that. And it's because there's character development. There's there, the people who are writing it are trying to build some type of connection with the audience to this particular character. And we should be doing that, I would argue, for all of our main characters and all of our writing. Um, and this does not apply just to screenwriters. It applies to all writers. And I would say we could take that same mentality and logic and apply it to our lives. That kind of school of thought is what encompasses the idea of the inclusive screenwriter, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ashwini, should someone want to continue this conversation with you, what is the best way to reach out? Yeah. So it's kind of a long one, but it's got all my info. It's all lowercase, the inclusive screenwriter. You can find me on my website. And so it tells more about me. It has my book links and all of my social media links. And also, if you can remember the inclusive screenwriter, all low caps, that's also my Instagram handle. All that information will be displayed in the show notes below. <laughs> and finally, Perfect. and finally, Ashwini, the question I ask everyone on this podcast. What will you be famous for? Oh, I love it. That is the <laughs> most fantastic question. Um, for two things. One is I am going to be famous for having media that brings back people that are erased or marginalized from history. That's what my Instagram account is dedicated to. So, you know, for example, do people know that uh, the first um, deputy marshal west of the Mississippi was a black man? Bass Reeves, or just recently, I posted um, two days ago, a day ago, did you know that Alexander Dumas, the guy that wrote Count of Monte Cristo and the Three Musketeers, that he was a quarter Afro-Caribbean? His grandma was an, an enslaved Afro-Caribbean woman um, in what we call Haiti now. So I'm going to be known for bringing those folks and to her screens. And the second thing that I'm going to be known for, which is one of my other missions in life and why I'm here, is to create safe spaces in the entertainment industry. It absolutely kills me when I hear about the Epsteins and the Weinsteins and what they have done and what other people are probably continuing to do. That is not okay. It makes, it breaks my heart to think of the talent that we've never seen because these folks weren't really given a fair shot. And so I want to be part of creating safe spaces. And even today, you're probably hearing a lot about the inclusion efforts of different networks and making sure that different production crews are diverse and diverse crews. So that's admirable and I understand. But then if we're going to talk about inclusion and belonging, what happens when they're on the production sets? Are people going to be sabotaging them? Are they going to be talking behind their back? I'm going to create safe spaces so that people truly cannot just be coming in and be left all alone. They're going to be feeling included and being excited to be in this industry. And they're going to want to be at places because they feel safe. And that's what equity, fairness, and justice in media is going to, is important to me and what I want to be promoting um, for the entertainment industry and kind of right, right the wrongs. Ashwini Prasad, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. If you've listened this far, it must mean you're a thriver. 
I want to thank you so much for listening. We want to stay connected with you. So please, in order to do that, we need you to follow every single one of our social media platforms. Can you do that? Follow us at Mr. Thrive Media, one word, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the same. Also, we want to keep you completely informed as to all the services that we provide. You can do that by going onto our website, www.mrthrive.com. That is mrthrive.com. Have a great day, and thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.